Welcome to the Pilot Protection Services Podcast, where AOPA's legal and medical certification staff, along with leading industry voices, take on the challenges and developments that all pilots deal with. From staying out of trouble with the FAA, to becoming a better pilot, to staying healthy so you can stay in the left seat longer. Hello, and welcome to the very first episode of AOPA's Pilot Protection Services Podcast. My name's Chad Mayer. I'm an in-house attorney with AOPA's Legal Services Plan, and I'll be your host. Joining me today are Kat Swain, AOPA's Senior Director of UAS, and Rachel McConaughey, an AOPA panel attorney in private practice in South Carolina. Kat, please tell us a little bit about yourself, and then Rachel will have you do the same, uh, and then we'll dive right in. Certainly. Hi, Chad. Hi, Rachel. Hi, everybody. So I'm Kat Swain. I'm the Senior Director of UAS Programming and Membership here at AOPA. Actually, this week is my third year anniversary here at AOPA. So cue the applause. Really cool that I've been here. I've actually been a member of AOPA since I was 16 years old. So I won't date myself too bad, but I've been around the block as far as the RC hobbyist world of, it wasn't drones back then, but um, hobbyist modeling world, became a private pilot, flew for DOD for the United States Air Force as an instructor pilot for the airlines for a little bit. I'm currently an active CFI here at AOPA and run all the drone programming for our membership. Yeah, and you're not busy at all. So, no, not at all. (laughs) Thank you, Kat, and and thank you for joining us. Rachel, also please tell us a little bit about yourself, and then we'll dive into current events. I'm Rachel McConney. I am an attorney in Greenville, South Carolina. I've been a lawyer since 2008, and I started looking into drone law in around 2015. So I've been learning about it and fascinated with it since around that time. Um, I'm the chair of the South Carolina Bar's Drone Task Force, so we've been doing that for about, it'll be two years this summer. Um, I write and study about drones and drone law, and you'll find me on Twitter. All right. Well, thank you, Rachel. We'll make sure to get your Twitter contact in the show notes. So the run of show today is going to be a breakdown of recent developments in news and and regulatory updates related to UAS, then a deeper dive into a recent article that Rachel wrote on a hypothetical drone shootdown scenario. And those have been making the news lately, so that'll be interesting to get into. Kat, why don't you start us off, please, with our updates? Yeah, definitely. Even though we had the government shutdown towards the end of the latter part of last year into this year, The FAA was still hard at work. We had a lot of interesting topics come out. So the first one is to make sure that your drone is labeled. So this came out in the beginning of the year. And when they say labeled, they mean kind of three ways of doing it. Not the old way of putting a piece of paper in the battery compartment where nobody might find it if your drone has a flyaway. They want you to either engrave your registration number, which you can find at FAADroneZone.com, or they want you to put a permanent sticker, or even if you can't find one of those, get out a Sharpie and write your registration number down on your drone. Also, some other interesting things that have come up, and we could talk all day on these interesting things because they really are. A lot of us in the Part 107 remote pilot world have been really clamoring for, let's put it this way, ways that we can fly without waivers. So a lot of the things that you want to do are waiverable areas under Part 107. For instance, flying over people, flying at night, doing other things with your drone in relation to the operation that you're doing. So the FAA is looking at, well, actually has put a proposed rule out there last month, and they're looking at two areas, night flights and also flights over people. So those are the two kind of new things that have come out lately. 
All right. Well, thank you, Kat. Very exciting to, to hear developments on those fronts. Well, we've also been hearing more about a remote ID and how important that's going to be to the safe integration of UAS and the national airspace system. What can you tell us about that, please? Yeah, exactly. Well, the first two things I talked about, the, the night flights without the waivers and the flights over people that aren't part of your operation, really can't be done until the remote ID comes through which is probably going to be in about one to two years, honestly, that we're going to see this happen. The way that you can kind of view remote ID is an electronic license plate for your drone. That's kind of the cool way to think about it, because the FAA wants to know who's flying in the airspace, who's flying in the national airspace from a safety and security standpoint. So that remote ID really has to be kind of flushed out, and that rule has to be out there before the FAA can really put out the night flight requirements and also the flights over people. Very good. Thank you, Kat. Do we have any insight into whether that's going to be some flavor of ADSB or, or something else or all of the above? It's definitely going to be a technology requirement, and it's one of those that's going to have to be figured out with industry along with the FAA. I kind of view it as the FAA's, the bus driver, and industry's kind of all the passengers that have to come up with the plan to make it all work. Well, that all makes sense. Thank you very much, Kat. Did you have anything else on the uh, regulatory updates front? Those people that are interested in night flights and flights over people, I do want to say go out to the FAA registry and take a look at it. There's about, it's about a 206-page document. It's a lot of uh, interesting night reading for you to go out there and really see what the FAA has proposed in those notices of proposed rulemaking for night flights and flights over people. And they also touch upon what are some of the new testing requirements that are going to roll out. Thank you. And we'll put links to those uh, rulemakings in the show notes. Certainly. Thanks. All right. And now let's pivot to Rachel. Uh, you recently wrote an article entitled, Advice for When the Lone Ranger Shoots Down Your Client's Rogue Drone. That evokes a kind of Wild West theme. And a lot of people think that's pretty apt considering the, the rapidly evolving state uh, of laws and regulations in the drone world. So I know you said you started looking into UAS in about 2015. Uh, let's talk first a little bit about what kinds of cases you see in your practice related to UAS? And, and then let's walk through your article, if we could, please. A lot of my clients are not coming to me necessarily for advice about drone law, but they are clients who have drone businesses and they want business advice from someone who understands their business and the, the very specific like FAA regulations that apply. Um, so we'll talk about certain things. Like one thing that's come up in South Carolina recently is whether or not you need a surveyor's license if you're going to fly and do GIS mapping with your drone. So sometimes those types of things come up, but usually it's just filing LLCs and writing contracts and that that type of thing. I'll have the, an occasional FAA enforcement action here and there. I haven't had any drone shoot down cases yet, um, but I'm sure <laughs> I'm sure one's coming. I'm sure eventually they will be. And just on, on those few enforcement cases that you do see, have those been certificate actions or, or civil penalty type fines or what have you seen on those? The ones I've seen so far have been mostly like a warning. So I haven't had any where somebody was hurt. I think if I don't even know that, that we've had any property damage that wasn't to the drone operator's own drone. I think that if we did see you know, injuries or property damage to a third party's property, we might see you know, more interest from the FAA. But mostly they're just like, oh, you, know, you get a finger shake and they say, don't, don't forget there are rules that apply to you and you need to follow them. So that's, that's kind of what we've seen so far. Right. It sounds like those cases of potentially inadvertent noncompliance are getting resolved through additional education or training uh, under the FAA's compliance philosophy. All right. And, right. and Yeah. And let, let's drill down into your article, if you could walk us through this. And just let me preface this by saying, you know, we do get some calls, not as often with real shoot downs, where 
the drone actually gets hit, but we get calls along the lines of someone just took a shot at my drone. <laughs> right. <laughs> what do I do? Um, so yeah, what, what have you got for us here? Yeah, unfortunately, I think this is probably happening a lot more than we might even be hearing about in the media. But there was that one recent case, I believe it was in New York, where um, there was a, a drone operator who was flying their drone to look for a lost dog. But somebody um, saw the drone flying what he thought was over his backyard. I think it turned out that it was not actually over his property. But he got out a shotgun and uh, shot the drone and hit it. And they went door to door looking for, you know, who might have done that. Did anybody see the drone? And then the guy admitted, like, yeah, I, I shot it down. It was over my property. So that that was, uh, I think, within the last month that that happened. Um, I started writing this article actually last summer because the number one question that I get when people find out that I do drone law is they want to know that if, if they can shoot it. <laughs> if there's a drone <laughs> over their backyard, they say, can I shoot it? And my answer is always, no, please do not do that. But if you do, I, I can't guarantee that you would necessarily be punished for it. So I wanted to write this article to let people know, you know, both for operators and for property owners, like kind of what claims would you either have against the shooter or the, the drone operator? And then also what claims would you need to be worried about coming against you in a, a situation like this? I think the drone community and the FAA and everybody would... Uh appreciate the not skeet shooting drone person. <laughs> yeah, we appreciate you writing the article and, right. <laughs> and putting that out there. Yes, yeah, indeed. Well, I hope it's useful. So in my hypothetical situation, there's a drone operator who it's like the end of the day, you know, late afternoon, and they're flying their drone in a park that is across the street from some houses. And so she's flying her drone. She's trying to catch pictures of a sunset, which I feel like is typical. <laughs> and then somebody shoots it down. And then after the drone is shot down and it falls in the street and then the property owner comes out and he's still holding his pellet gun. I think it's a pellet gun. And he starts yelling at her about how she's invading his privacy and stuff. And she's like, no, I wasn't even over your yard. You shot it down and it fell on the street. You know, obviously it wasn't even over your property. And so the rest of the article is written to an attorney. And it's like, what advice do you give the property owner if the property owner comes into your office and says, this is what happened. And then uh, also, what advice would you give the drone operator if the drone operator came into your office and said, this is what happened? Like, what are my claims? So I think the, the first one I went to was the um, drone operator's claims against the shooter. So there are four of them. And, and this article is written for South Carolina law. So probably most states and jurisdictions will have similar claims. But just I'm not giving legal advice for the whole country. No, of course, right we, we understand. Thank <laughs> the you. disclaimer. Right, right. So the first one is just for the property damage to the drone. So in South Carolina, if you've got a property claim that's $7,500 or less, you can bring that in municipal court or magistrate's court. So you could do that. And then if it was more than that, you know, you could bring a claim in civil court for just whatever the, the damage to the drone was. I know some of them can be very expensive. And then second is assault and battery in the third degree. And that claim really turns on the fact that in, in my hypothetical scenario, the property owner came out and was yelling at the pilot while still carrying the gun. So an assault claim, kind of you have to have that uh, element of the victim has to have a reasonable fear you know, for their personal safety. So the, the fact that the property owner is still holding the gun kind of speaks to that element. The third claim, it has to do with discharging a firearm within uh, certain jurisdictional borders. So some cities or counties might say you can't 
shoot a gun in city limits. So that just depends on whether that that's applicable in the particular area. And then the last one, oh, one detail I forgot to mention that was part of my hypothetical is that the property owner is sitting in his backyard having a drink, like a beer or something. And so the last claim is shooting a firearm while under the influence of alcohol or controlled substance. So again, that, that just kind of depends on the particular rules in your area and the facts of the case. Sure. Thank you, Rachel. And, and I, I noted in your article, you pointed out that shooting at an aircraft is a federal crime, but we don't typically see a lot of enforcement or prosecutions on that front. I was wondering if you had any thoughts on why that might be. And Kat, please feel free to chime in as well. My article is just state level claims. And partly I, I chose to do that because the FAA doesn't like to go after these types of cases. Like, I mean, I think that we've all heard many, many of these judge shoot down cases, and I've never heard of a time the FAA has tried to go after the shooter under that federal law. I think that they don't do it because they don't have the resources, and I think they just kind of don't really want to get involved. It seems like I don't know what they would get out of it for, for trying to enforce that. I mean, Kat, what do you think? Yeah, I, I often get the question of, you know, drone or aircraft now, um, just like manned aircraft are, and let's say somebody is pointing a laser at an aircraft while they're on the ground, that is enforceable, and the FAA has gone after those people that have pointed the laser into cockpits of airplanes, and they say, okay, what, what real difference is that from my drone getting shot down by somebody's shotgun, uh, a firearm, you know, and I think you have to look at it you have to look at it, yes, they're both aircraft, but one has people on board, the other one does not. Right. Um, and also, though, you do have to consider that, and I think you brought this up, Rachel, that if the person shoots down the drone, where does that drone fall? I mean, right now, the cases that have happened, the drone hasn't fallen on anybody and caused any property damage or injury, but a drone, a fairly large drone, could cause injury or death to somebody falling from a certain altitude. So that's something to be considered uh, when people are taking action into their own hands. Also kind of diving back to your point, I think it was point two, when in the scenario, the the person came out with the shotgun and approached the drone operator. You know, I've, I've experienced that firsthand, and that's very nerve-wracking. I did a lot of humanitarian drone flying in my early days. Flying a drone in the Pacific Northwest, and we were in a humanitarian exercise, and we were not flying over private property, but pretty close to, and the owner of the private property that we were next to came out with a shotgun threatening to shoot the drones out of the sky and also threatened us as well. So it's very nerve-wracking when you're a commercial drone operator trying to fulfill your mission per FAA guidelines, but you run into a lot of these roadblocks and kind of how to get through them. All right. Thanks all. And and Kat, it sounds like you might have had that imminent fear of physical harm that might have given rise to uh, an assault charge like Rachel was talking about. All right. So, Rachel, next, if you could please walk us through the, the landowner's potential claims against the drone operator. Okay. What's interesting to me about these types of claims is most people who are not drone operators feel very certain that they have these types of claims or that they would and that they would have no trouble proving them and that, you know, a jury would side with them and all of that. And then, you know, when I was doing my research, I really think that they would almost all be much harder to prove than than the drone operator's claims for like property damage and stuff. So the first one that everybody talks about is like, well, wouldn't I have a claim for invasion of privacy if someone was flying a drone over my backyard? I really think probably not, because I don't think you would have a reasonable expectation of privacy in your backyard, because a backyard is not one of those typical places like a bedroom or a bathroom or a dressing room in a, in a mall or a store where you would um, be undressing. 
And those are the typical examples given by courts when they're examining whether someone has a reasonable expectation of privacy in a particular place. Um, like in my backyard, we don't have a fence around the backyard or anything, and I can see into all of my neighbor's backyards, and all of them can see into mine. So I obviously wouldn't be stepping out in my backyard and, you know, undressing. So why would I expect to have a, an expectation of privacy from the air if I don't have an expectation of privacy from my neighbor's second-story window? Rachel, um, can I ask you a question sure. on that, though? What about does intent come into it? So intent of the, of the drone operator or drone pilot what are they intending to do? Are they doing, let's say, a survey next door and it just looks like they're overflowing the, your property? Or is it a malicious, let's say, bad player that's out there, I hate to say, but spying on somebody? Does the intent come into it at all? Uh, it really depends on how the statute is written. In my article, I talk about the criminal invasion of privacy claims, and then there's civil invasion of privacy claims. Criminal invasion of privacy, um, that those are like peeping Tom laws and eavesdropping. Peeping Tom, definitely there's an intent requirement. So it has to be malicious intent to record someone without their knowledge. And then usually, like in South Carolina, our law talks about surveillance and then hostile intrusion or hostile surveillance. So those things certainly require intent. Uh, I believe the eavesdropping statute we have here is just like you can't record someone without their consent. So even if you're accidentally recording someone's conversation, you know, technically that could be a violation. But I don't know how much of that you would really get like of a recorded conversation if you're flying a drone you know, depending how low you were, how loud the rotors were, and that type of thing. All right, the last two claims that the property owner might have against the drone operator would be private nuisance, and that would be if the operator's conduct or flying of the drone over the backyard was really causing an unreasonable interference with the property owner's use and enjoyment of their land. I think that would have to be shown if it was like repeated flights like every night from five to seven there are noisy drone flights over my backyard every five minutes I really think it would have to be something like that to rise to the level of um, unreasonable interference and then the last one is trespass that also depends on how the local statutes are written if the drone lands on someone else's property obviously that could be considered a trespass but it's much less clear whether just a drone flying over the property even if it is directly over the property owner's land, whether that would be considered, you know, like an aerial trespass. It's, it's really just not clear at this point. All right. Thanks, Rachel. Yeah. And that, that's certainly what we hear from uh, attorneys in a, a multitude of states that where that line is, is ambiguous. So mm-hmm. thank you both for joining us, Kat and Rachel. And thank you to the audience for listening to the very first episode of the Pilot Protection Services podcast. Thanks for tuning in to the Pilot Protection Services podcast. We'll be back soon with more of your favorite topics and guests in general aviation. Pilot Protection Services is available only to AOPA members, and over 64,000 of those members choose to protect their certificates with PPS. It's a service we're proud to provide. Fly safe, and we'll see you soon.